Hello and thank you for joining Haaretz Weekly. With you in studio, Amir Tibon. Later on today's episode, we'll speak with American political analyst John Judas on the one-year anniversary of the January 6th attack on Congress and the chances for a Donald Trump political comeback. But before that... Here in Israel, the Omicron variant is spreading out of control. Prime Minister Bennett spoke this week about millions of infections here in Israel, and the public is running around from one testing site to another, trying desperately to follow the new rules set by the health ministry. To discuss this, we have with us one of Israel's top public health officials, Professor Diane Levine. the National Director of the Department for Health, Education and Promotion at Klalit, which is Israel's largest health services provider, and the Chair of the National Health Promotion Council at the Israeli Ministry of Health. Nice to be here with you. Thank you for joining us. Professor Levine, do you understand why Israelis are so confused these days about the messages coming from the government, from the health ministry, regarding the current wave of COVID in Israel? I think this is a new situation. In the past, we've had the medical services and the medical science firstly establishing their evidence and then taking the time to translate it so that the public knew what to do. But now with... It was a long process. Sometimes it could take months. It took it years even. And what's really happening with COVID as opposed to pre-health situations is that we're all so anxious to get the best information because this is a new situation that no one has experienced before. So as soon as any evidence, as any scientific results have come through, it is immediately translated into the way in which the public can use it. So this is something we weren't used to before. We were used to having information being digested first by the medical establishment and then translated into ways in which the public can use it and filtered. And now this has just been such an amazing immediate partnership between policymakers, scientists, and the public that it's, it takes a little bit of getting used to. Well, that's an optimistic take because other people could say it has created a situation where in Israel you have now supposedly 5 million uh, experts on uh, pandemics and, uh, and viruses and uh, they know better than everyone else about the testing and what should be done and shouldn't be done. I think we're all basically going in the same direction. We may be using a different language, and the timing might be a little bit different. But I think in general, everybody has the goal of trying to keep the public as healthy as possible, whether you're infant, child, adolescent in school, a university student, a soldier, an adult, elderly. I think we're all interested in keeping the public as healthy as possible and keeping the public as active as possible and trying to get back as soon as possible to normal times. And for example, in Klalit, that's what we've been striving for the whole time, to keep the health system open, to keep primary care services working in the community, to keep the hospital services going. We're setting the precedent, and this will be for generations to come. We will be teaching and learning from this situation about what to do in future health crises. But I have to say, as a journalist who does not cover health issues on the day-to-day, And also as a citizen in this country, I feel that up until the last few weeks, and maybe even this week specifically, there was a sense that the overall the public 
has actually grown more appreciative in the last two years of the health system, of the hospitals, of organizations like Klalit that were the ones who distributed the vaccines against COVID. And suddenly in the last week or so, something has broken. And I think the sense of trust has been broken. And now people are mostly just confused. They don't understand what should we do. The testing methods change every day. The rules about quarantine change every two hours almost. And it seems like the public is just going around without clear answers. I think the Ministry of Health is doing the best job they can, and we're partnering with them so that as soon as there is any information coming out of the Ministry of Health, we immediately translate it so that it is appropriate for the different cultures, the different communities, the different age groups. And I think we could look at it as a sense of uh, this is a stage of really empowering the public, because I think not only is the public or we're striving for public trust in the system, I think the system has realized that we can really, and we always have, and even more so trust the public. So the fact that there is a variety and diversity of messages, depending upon what kind of community you have, depending upon what age group it is, depending upon what kind of exposure you had to the virus or who you're exposed to, I think this is really a way in which we can see that the system is crediting the public and is trusting the public just as we hope the public will trust the system. This is a real partnership and we all need patience and we all need to be here for the long run to work together. I think this is really a testimony to the way in which we can look at it positively and say, okay, we're going to be on board for whatever messages change, because this is a really a dynamic situation. We, this is a very tricky virus. It is changing in ways that we cannot always predict, but we can be there and be one step ahead so that if the situation changes, we're ready. And I think the public is really going to appreciate that. I think we're doing our best to keep the systems open, to keep the economy open. Of course, the public health system is mainly interested in health, but We also see that when we're socially healthy, we're physically healthy. So I think we're doing the best that can be done so that we don't have a complete lockdown. So I do want to ask you about that, because basically we see that the current government adopted a policy of not having lockdowns, even if the price of that is soaring numbers of infections and this sense of confusion in the public versus the previous policy that was to take Israel time after time into a lockdown. When you put the two bad options on a scale, Where do you think it tips? Which one is better for the public health out of these two policies? Well, you know, negative plus negative is positive. So <laughs> I think we're going in the right direction. I think we're actually going to be seeing that the fact that the public is becoming more and more empowered to be able to keep stay healthy. I think the messages are saying we're trusting the public. The public is acting more and more responsibly. And understanding, just think about where we were two years ago when there was just the first... inkling of a message about wearing masks. Most of the public didn't even know what kind of mask there should be and how to use it. How do you get one? How do you wear it? <laughs> how much do you pay for it? How do you teach your children to use it? Look how far we've come. So there has been an amazing adoption of health habits, of just understanding that we can change as a public, we can do it together. There is a sense of solidarity and there is a sense of, of mutual support And people are understanding that what they do affects others, particularly within the family. So, you know, it's easy for us to say the past week or two may be a bit confusing, but look how far we've come. And this will really be to our benefit for future health situations. 
Plus, we're saying we're just going to keep ourselves healthy in other ways. I mean, health is not just Corona. It's what do we do for our, a healthy lifestyle. Let's not forget that, you know, we have to keep our nutrition up, physical activity. If we're on the road to stop smoking, we got to just stay on that journey. And there's a lot of other health issues that we're dealing with. And we want to keep the public just uh, feeling their sense of confidence and their trust in the, in the public and their healthcare workers who have really worked so hard to get the situation to balance it out as much as possible. With the numbers we're seeing right now in Israel, and we heard Prime Minister Bennett say we could have two to four million people infected with Omicron, do you think the policy of putting people in a quarantine over exposure still makes sense at this point with such a widespread infection? I don't think we have an alternative. I think the way in which the direction's been going is that we want to prevent as much infection as possible. This is the only way in which at this point we... have the answer to the question of what are the other options and at this point i think the public has learned we've all learned how to do it how to quarantine for a shorter period of time how to keep ourselves healthy while we do it how to compensate the health care workers are just doing an amazing job you know in clalit in the ministry of health and all the health care system to try to keep uh, messages as up-to-date as possible, support people as much as possible. Most important is keeping the information going in a transparent way, in a way in which people can trust the information, in ways in which they're seeing the sources of information are sources that they can trust. And those sources have their help in priority. And we have, we're fighting the infodemics. We're fighting sources that are not good sources of information. And that's part of our job. I want to ask you about that as well, because Israel, over the last year and a half, also went through a very interesting process regarding vaccines, because it was one of the first countries to sign an agreement with uh, Pfizer and to get vaccines over to Israel and to start a national vaccination campaign, and then the first country in the world to offer the booster shot, and now the, the fourth vaccine shot. And this was celebrated here in Israel and was also, I think, an inspiration to others around the world. But we are also seeing... In Israel still stubborn minority that is opposed to vaccination and that stubborn minority seems to have an impact on others as well because we see that there are hundreds of thousands of Israelis who got two shots of the vaccine and then did not get the booster so as someone who deals with health literacy and you mentioned the infodemic the problem of, of bad information what does this say about our society that we went from being the vaccine champions of the world to the current situation with you know lagging vaccination on the booster and among children as well I think the, the answer lies in the fact that people are giving thought to what they're doing to their health and they're also I think exercising critical health literacy so people want to know more people want to make sure that what they're doing is on their in their best health and it benefits their health best which is great the question is who are they in consulting when they need information and we're most interested in that they consult the healthcare system you know the data speak for themselves you know you mentioned that maybe we're zigzagging a bit Israel is still leading the world I think in the whole struggle with covid and the fact that we could see that as soon as the critical mass of the public is vaccinated you know we see what happens with the decrease in the infection and until we learn that what we have to do next that's one thing that everybody's been complaining about right now in Israel you know confusing messages especially around the issue of testing the idea that now people like myself for example I'm under 60 and I luckily don't have any pre-existing conditions and so if I want to get tested for covid if I got exposed to someone I can only do basically an antigen test at home which is not considered very reliable 
what do you say to people who are confused, some are angry over this change in the policy, the fact that now there is a, only a limited exit to the more accurate PCR tests? Well, I think we're going to be seeing a change in that as well. I think the government is working very hard to pick up the pace and to make sure that there'll be as many reliable tests as possible to access and clarit. We're also doing as much as we can to make sure that we're providing kits to people to make sure that people can the right people are getting the right exam. Also instead of unnecessarily having to leave home, having to stand in line and perhaps also infect others or be infected, you know we're looking for home tests and in general, we have to just keep improving. What we have as far as the testing as the as far as the tools the technology and i think you'll be seeing that there'll be improvement this is like a work in progress and you know we've hit the ground running it's similar to maybe flying the plane while we're building it but that's what corona has done for the healthcare system all over the world and i think we can commend the healthcare system for being that flexible at least in israel i can say that for sure that you know the flexibility of the system the quick decision making that's been made by our policy makers which we're used to for all sorts of different reasons i think that has been to the for the benefit of the corona pandemic so Yeah, we would like it to be a perfect situation. We would like um, all the decisions to be made way ahead of time with all of the resources as possible and having learned with our crystal balls ahead of time. But I think the system is doing a great job. I think the more people listen to the media and are listening to the right sources, I think you'll see that, that in general we'll be moving forward. Professor Dan Levine of Klalit Health Services and the University of Haifa, thank you very much for joining us for this conversation today. Thank you so much and stay healthy. Up next, conversation with American political analyst John Judas on the one-year anniversary of the January 6th attack on Congress and the chances for a Trump political comeback. Hello, Haaretz. It's great to have you on our podcast, John. And you're joining us immediately after a weekend in which America mentioned one year to the January 6th attack on Capitol Hill, the attempt to stop the uh, electoral votes from being counted. And we're going to talk today about populism and the far right and other big political ideas that are right now on the rise in America and the world. I want to start by asking you specifically about that event. How extraordinary is it in American history when we look at January 6th in the broader history of the United States? Well, I'm not sure yet. We're not going to know for uh, three years or maybe even seven years because there, there, there are a lot of resemblances between what's happening in the United States now and what happened from... Let's say that the late 1880s up through the 1920s, when we had tremendous ferment uh, that was precipitated in part by the farm economy. Americans used to be primarily farmers becoming obsolete and replaced by an industrial urban economy. There was a lot of ferment then. There were populist socialists. I can't yet fully apprise the significance of what's happened, but for me in my lifetime, it was startling and scary to see the results of an election challenged in the way that it was. Do you think that the American democracy has overcome the threat represented by the events of that day, or maybe perhaps the worst is still ahead of us? Yeah, that's, that's what I say. I, do, I don't know. Look, I mean, we had a civil war in the country where, you know, almost a million people died, but you had really two modes of production, uh, sl- slavery and 
plantation-based and uh, in, in, industrial farm-based in the north and separate regions that were clashing. It's very hard still to see where this is going to all go. If somebody other than Trump is nominated in for 2024 for president, I think that as far as the threat to democracy is concerned, it'll subside. A lot of it is uh, based on the perpetuation of his stop the steal and uh, Trump as a charismatic figure, mobilizing, again, a minority of the Republican Party, but scaring the rest of them. And speaking of Trump himself, how unusual of a figure is he in the American political history that you've written so much about over the years? You know, it's really hard to find parallels with him. It's easy to find parallels, especially when during his presidency, to businessmen. You know, it was the classic hustler, con man, salesman, magnified 10 times into a billionaire who happens to win office. And, the, you know, this is also happening in other places around the world, who is uh, really unprepared to be president, doesn't think he's going to win the presidency and uh, behaves somewhat erratically as a president. I was not uh, enamored by these diagnoses that happened right away, that he's a narcissist and uh, that he's crazy and stuff like that. I mean, you can make those of, of a lot of presidents, and they've been made, for instance, of Nixon or even of, of Reagan and George W. Bush. But what seems to happen and what's a little scary is that After he lost in November, I think he's become more erratic and uh, genuinely nutty. My former colleague Andrew Sullivan compared him to one of uh, Shakespeare's Mad Kings, one of the Richards. And I think that that's the way to uh, think of him as a kind of dethroned monarch who wants to get back on the throne. Yeah, I mean, to say that he has become crazier since leaving office is a big statement because we all remember some of the highlights of the presidency itself, like that famous press conference talking about getting Clorex into the veins and things like that. I started to get worried a, a little bit then. But again, if you read some of the accounts, <laughs> Trump himself... understood the uh, gravity of the situation from the pandemic, maybe as early as late January, but he wanted to con the public about it. He didn't want the public panic and he was worried about his election chances. So again, I think you could make a case for him not being totally off the rails at that point. When he goes now and gives a speech, I mean, I followed his campaign in 2016. I was on, you know, to some extent on the road. And he used to actually devote about three quarters of his speeches to uh, economics and to corporations moving overseas and things like that. And the really nutty stuff, the build a wall and stuff was a, you know, fairly small percentage. Now he goes on the road and he talks about us having the election stolen. I mean, he's obsessive about it. He doesn't have any other issue as far as, as I, I can tell. And that's a sign for me that he has indeed gone off a little off the rails. In 2021, the year that uh, Trump left the White House and the year that we saw 
that attack on Congress and the year that Biden took office. You put out a book called The Politics of Our Time, Populism, Nationalism, Socialism, which summarizes three previous books that you had put out, I would say, during the drama of the Trump years. One was The Populist Explosion, which I think you wrote before Trump came to power, correct? Yes, I did. It came out in, uh, I think, in August of 2016. Great timing on that, the populist explosion, and then the nationalist revival and the socialist awakening. And those three themes, populism, nationalism, and socialism, becoming the politics of our time. Before we talk about today, try to see if we are seeing some historical comparisons here, because somebody could have put out a book called The Politics of Our Time, Populism, Nationalism, and Socialism, just as well a hundred years ago. That's uh, true, and that's, again, we began when you asked me, I said that there's some similarities, and that is probably true of Europe as well in the period there uh, from the 1880s uh, up until World War I. The United States, it goes a little... A time of great transformation? Yes, it goes a little farther in uh, the United States, but yes, absolutely, there are uh, parallels there. And... Uh, You know, in, in Europe, the 19th century, early 20th century was the, really the rise of, of uh, nationalism, Germany, Italy's re reunification, all those things, and Zionism. So I think the reason there's parallels is that you have a kind of epical shift in, uh, you know, what the Marxists would call the, rec the relations of production. where the world economy is changing, the way we produce things is changing, the nature of work is changing, and the kinds of experiments that we underwent in the 1990s, particularly, I'm thinking of globalization, letting capital go wherever it wants, immigration, again, encouraging big waves of immigration, All those things are starting to backfire, and they began backfiring in the, 2000, in the early part of this uh, century. If you want to go back again to the comparison to Europe, and you mentioned the Great Transformation, the era of laissez-faire, of letting capitalism go wherever it wants, letting companies do whatever they want, the gold standard, that all crashes in World War I and in the 1920s, and you, you know, you get some very unsavory elements. elements coming out of that, fascism among them. And when you look at today, are you worried about a similar threat emerging on our horizon? You have to be worried about threats on the right. Again, I've never really been excited about the parallels with fascism. I mean, there isn't, Trump movement is not really a fascism in the same sense. I mean, Hitler had an army of uh, a militia of almost a million people, very different. Also expansionists, not uh, as opposed to uh, the Trump people who were almost uh, neo-isolationist in terms of uh, the exertion of American power. Yeah, he, one of his promises that he didn't fulfill was to bring uh, troops back home. Yes, absolutely. I mean, he didn't want to take over Mexico. He wanted to build a, a wall between uh, the United States and Mexico. You could imagine, again, the Hitler parallel. He'd want to enslave the Mexicans and have them working uh, as laborers or something like that. But that doesn't mean that there couldn't be very toxic things happening in the right. 
and it's happening to some extent in uh, Eastern Europe, Turkey, India, you know, this, this, this is not an, the United States, not an uh, isolated uh, development. Brazil would be another example. All people, again, that look to Trump for leadership. Where do you place Biden's election in this global outview that you are providing us right now of the rising far-right forces around the world, and then suddenly in America, Trump loses to Biden? What is the significance of that? I was a little worried about the introduction I wrote, which came out, and I think it was in January because it was a little pessimistic. But now I feel less worried about the truth of it and more worried about the country. I think Biden was a placeholder, if I could put it that way. He was a not Trump. He was somebody uh, who didn't mobilize a big opposition toward him. but who himself was a real, almost a, a bland character, a tabula rasa, upon which uh, people who didn't like Trump and were scared of Trump could write their own politics. He saw themselves, and the, and the Biden people saw themselves, and this has been true of the last, the prior Democratic administrations, as being a new Franklin Roosevelt and having 100 days, and he'd do all these things. And doing a new New Deal. Yes, the new New Deal. And, you know, he did get a relief in infrastructure bill because that's where people were scared out of their minds at that point about the, the conjuncture of the economy and the pandemic. You know, the infrastructure is, again, a bipartisan issue. But in terms of the big bill they're doing now, I'm not surprised it's crashing. He does not have majorities. He has a, in the Senate, it's 50-50, and the uh, vice president breaks a tie. And Manchin, who they all complain about, is representing a state that went, uh, what, 70-30 for Trump. So what's he supposed to do? I mean, he's, again, senators are supposed to partly represent their own uh, constituents. The country is really divided. And uh, we're at a kind of l- uh, lull in that sense where you don't know where it's going to go. Where, and I suspect Again, I, I strongly suspect, suspect we're going to see a Republican uh, revival in 2022 in November, and that it's very possible we might see a Republican president in 2024. Probably from the Democrat standpoint, the best case, case uh, scenario would be uh, Trump uh, running again. That could pose the most danger for the country, but it could also be mobilize a, a lot of swing voters, a lot of people who are on the fence uh, who would become more focused on the threat of him than on the fact that the Democrats hadn't solved what they thought were the country's uh, underlying uh, problems. So this year's uh, midterm election is uh, going to take place, I think, 20 years after you put out, uh, I think, arguably your uh, what became your most famous uh, political commentary book which was the emerging democratic majority can you discuss that a little bit what was the idea behind the book and I think you later said that some of the assumptions eventually you, you change your mind about them and, and things look different today 20 years later I did it with uh, my friend uh, Rui Teixeira I have to say what what we predicted in the book was by the end of the first decade of the twenty first century, the Democrats would have established something of a majority, but not as strong a majority as the uh, Roosevelt had done in the New Deal, which lasted what thirty, forty years. And that's what happened with Obama. So in that sense, it was right, yeah. so so we were vindicated. we We were a uh, big shots for a while. 
But our assumptions rested upon several things. One was, again, women voters, especially single women, were, had been moving Democratic since 1980. Women used to actually be a Repub more conservative than men politically in uh, American politics, more, more a Republican. Professionals. My wife's a dentist, and it used to be the Republicans used to be like a part. The part dentists and professionals used to be the single most important constituency and most dependable constituency of the Republican Party. And starting in the 1980s, and you could first saw it really in in the Dukakis election in 1988, people who have advanced degrees, teachers, nurses, up through doctors, architects, software people began going democratic. A lot of it's over social issues, but also support for economic regulation, uh, skepticism about a kind of laissez-faire capitalism. So that's, those were two constituencies. And then you had the minorities. Blacks remain extremely loyal. Jews and blacks are the two most loyal racial and ethnic groups in terms of the uh, Democratic Party, plus Hispanics, plus Asians were starting to vote uh, Democratic. So that, that was sort of what we saw as the coalition. But we thought that the Democrats would also retain the loyalty of about 40% of the old white working class that had been its mainstay since the New Deal. And that's where the biggest change happened later in the decade that just ended, right? And that's the movement we saw toward Trump, basically. Absolutely. We were short-sighted about that. If you have to go by polls, polls ask certain questions and not others. But the real split... is not so much between educated, fully educated, not fully educated, but it's the, it's the economic geography of the country. And I think that that's what we didn't anticipate, which is to say that the parties and the politics are very much split between these big metro areas, like the one I live in, greater DC, New York, Boston, Chicago, and so on. And the small towns and mid-sized towns, we're not talking about farms. Farms have all, you know, have tended to be Republican from the beginning. But we're talking about the small industrial towns, the mid-sized towns like uh, Youngstown or Erie, Pennsylvania, that have all really started going uh, Republican. And you could see it strongly in 2010 in the congressional elections. And so you put those together with the South, which started going Republican in 1980. 1994 elections. And you have at least a standoff in the country between the Democrats and the Republicans. A phrase that I use from a political scientist, you have an unstable equilibrium, which is to say that the parties are pretty matched and they keep changing office, changing power, because the voters become dissatisfied with the party in power and then put in the other one. And given our system, which is not a parliamentary system where Uh, one party is going to control the executive and the legislative. You have a real stalemate. That's what led to the sense that people express that nothing happens in Washington, that they don't get anything done. Yes, exactly, because the Congress can block the executive and vice versa. I mean, the Democrats were able to block... Uh, When George W. Bush wanted to do uh, reform Social Security, they stopped that. And uh, equally, when Biden is having trouble now getting his build back better, which would do a lot about climate change and health care and things like that. I want to ask you about another demographic element that we saw 
changing recently, which is that also in some minority populations, there is a growing shift toward Republicans. What do you think explains that? They are for, forced immigrants, but the immigrant groups in America uh, usually go through this cycle where they began as Democrats have always been the party of immigrants, starting in the 1820s. As they work up the ladder economically, they become more conservative, they tend to vote Republican. This is true about the Italians and the Irish and the Germans. So I expected that this kind of promise of huge Hispanic majorities wasn't going to come to pass. It surprised people a lot because Trump has these xenophobic views of uh, Mexicans, you know, they're rapists, they're coming across the county, the uh, border, all this stuff that I thought, and a lot of people thought, would turn off uh, Mexican-American voters. But, you know, you had other issues. You had uh, the fact that on the border, uh, there actually isn't a lot of support among his Hispanics or Latinos for illegal immigration. The border wall was actually somewhat uh, popular. In the cities, let's say in Chicago, the uh, riots and the role of urban blacks in those riots scared a lot of Hispanic voters, plus the defund the police, which was, of course, not just the Black Lives Matter issue, but also had tremendous support among this kind of really ultra-liberal uh, whites, young whites. So I think that those were factors. With Asians, education is a huge issue. It's now this attempt to kind of dumb down standards because the Asians were getting into all these schools because they work hard. The, the Asians are sort of the, you know, the Jews of the 21st century in America. I want to get ahead uh, through education and through getting their kids into fancy schools. And you have schools like Harvard that are introducing these phony kind of standards about like personality so that they can prevent Asians from being. My school, Berkeley, uh, had what, 53% Asian. And that's a big issue. And in California now you see a shift of the Asian vote towards the uh, Republicans for that reason. So looking forward into 2022, and you've mentioned also 2024, you think like the Trump-controlled Republican Party and the movement behind it has a strong chance for a political comeback. Yeah, but again, Trump is an old guy like me. I mean, you can't tell what's going to happen to him. Well, we know that he already had COVID, that's for sure. And he recovered from that. But again, let's just talk about Republicans. And it's important in a sense to leave Trump out because... The Democrats, and this was a part of the January 6th memorial and hoopla that went in Washington and the hearings and all this stuff, really want to make Trump and the insurrection the major issue in American politics. But I just don't think it's going to work. And you saw that in the Virginia gubernatorial election that took place in November 2021, where the uh, Democrat Terry McAuliffe tried to run against the Republican Glenn Youngkin on the issue of Trump. They spent all their commercials and time trying to tag uh, Youngkin as a Trump Republican, and Trump didn't visit the state. In 2022, unless, you know, Trump has a lot of, uh, leads a lot of riots in October, and uh, there's a lot of crazy stuff, insurrectionary stuff going on, I don't know whether this democracy thing is going to play for the Democrats. I expect, 
you know, that the big issues are going to be the economy, and particularly if inflation is still going on, COVID if we haven't controlled the pandemic, and a whole host of social issues, immigration, race and gender, uh, crime, defund the police. These are all issues where right now I'd have to say the Democrats are at a disadvantage. I'm pessimistic right now about the uh, Democratic chances. And, uh, you know, I hate to say this, but the best case scenario would be if somebody other than Trump gets to be uh, some Republican other than Trump gets to be president in 2024. And then we return to at least a kind of constitutional uh, normalcy. Well, John Judas, this has been a fascinating conversation. We were hoping also to talk to you a bit about Israel because you've also written interesting things in the past about our part of the world, but we'll have to save that for our next meeting. Thank you very much again. And uh, to people who want to dive deeper into these issues. So again, the name of your latest book, The Politics of Our Times on Nationalism, Socialism and Populism. Thank you very much, John, for being with us today. My pleasure. And that's it for today's episode. Thank you to Jonathan Manievich and Dan Brumer who were on the production side, to Maya Benissan who edited the episode. And from here we are sending good wishes to our regular producer Aaron Ehrlich and want to thank you, the listeners, for joining us again. And we hope to meet you again next week. Until then, Shalom from Tel Aviv.